Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Twixters, it's me, Kate Lister. It's so nice to see you here. What are you doing here? What is a nice person like you doing in a podcast like this? I reckon that you are hanging around waiting for your fair dues warning. Good, because here it is. This is an adult podcast spoken by adults to other adults about a range of adult things in an adult way, and you should be an adult too. Today we are talking about Victorian sex, so we're going to get mucky, baby. That's just how it is. And if that's not all right with you, give this one a skip because, fair dues, you were warned. The Victorians, what first leaps to your mind when you think about the 19th century? Hmm? Dresses that cover women's ankles, Charles Dickens, Queen Victoria in full frump mode. Flagellation? Yep, yep, you heard me right, betwixters. All right, maybe not so much the last one, but it should be, because the Victorians were a notoriously kinky group of people. They loved erotic fiction, they invented photographic porn, and they were definitely partial to a bit of slap and tickle in the bedroom. Well, some of them were anyway, including some pretty big names in the 19th century. So today, Betwixters, we are going to be busting some sex myths around the Victorians. Why have they ended up with a really prudish reputation when they were proper mucky pups? What did they use as contraceptives? And did Queen Victoria really say lie back and think of England? What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing the button. Right. Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with it, Jerry. Welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society with me, Kate Lister. Humans have been having sex as long as there have been humans with holes to put things in. We know that. And the Victorians were no different. We like to think of them as very buttoned down and very much thou shalt not. But I am here to tell you that they were 
very, very naughty people indeed. So how did they end up with a reputation of a group of people that couldn't stand looking at a table leg? That wasn't true, by the way. What was considered sexy at the time and why did they have a fascination with spanking? We are going to find out all of that and more in today's episode with the one, the only, the lovely Dan Snow from our sister podcast, Dan Snow's History Hit. Not only is he fantastically knowledgeable about history, but it is my life's mission to embarrass him and make him blush. Mission succeeded in this one. Whips at the ready, betwixters. Let's do it. Hey, Kate, thanks for coming back on the show. Anytime. Thanks for asking me. I just, you know, I sometimes feel sorry for the Victorians because I think we, we have these weird views on them almost uniquely in our history. Mm. We think of this group of people who are either so prudish and so conservative, they'd never even seen their partner naked and were surprised they could even find yeah. where to put it and have kids. <laughs> or we think of them as unbelievably deviant and having like yeah. wild sex parties in the slums of Victorian England. Like what's, what's the reality? Are they so different from any other period? I think the first thing you need to think of when you talk about the Victorians is that all of these things can be true at the same time. Okay. They are a very, very complex, strange, maybe not that strange, but they're a very complex group of people. I'm not sure if they're any stranger than any point in history, but perhaps what makes them unique is it's the Industrial Revolution. And it's, it's the time of photography. It's the time when film is born. It's the time of the mass printing media, the newspapers are taking off, People, literacy rates are going through the roof. So there's more remaining sources with which to document right. their strangeness. So you look at a Hogarth print from the 18th century and you're like, oh, you know, that, that just feels funny. Yeah. Whereas you look at early photography of like naked people and Victorians doing weird things, like, oh my God, so deviant. They were a, a uniquely strange bunch of people <laughs> in the fact that, that they did have this outer facing public persona of let's not talk about sex. Sex is something that's just for making babies and um, we're not going to be deviant. Everyone's just going to behave themselves. That's not the whole picture. They're really, really conflicted because you can't actually maintain that because people are going to have sex and they like having sex. So you get a real state of cognitive dissonance developing. Yeah. When I'm like reading Victorian novels, you're so struck by that. One of the strongest elements of those is they could be in the middle of a war zone mm. or being attacked by a mythical beast or in a Conan Doyle novel or like a dinosaur. But any suggestion that you have an inappropriate conversation with a member of the opposite <laughs> sex is like, no. They were kind of very different from us, whereas um, we talk about sex all the time but don't talk about something like death. The Victorians talked endlessly about death and wouldn't talk about sex. So it's just changing yeah. attitudes. I thought you might be able to say that. We talk about sex all the time and are having historically less sex than ever before. <laughs> and the Victorians never talked about it, but they might have been shagging away happily. They might have been. What they were, I mean, were all the living, walking, breathing proof that people yeah. in the Victorian period, someone was having sex. There's no wireless, not much else to do. Right? Yeah. And you've got to think as well, If like, this is a group of people, they were not not obsessed with sex by sheer virtue of the fact that there is so much upset and anger and attempts at repression. If you're running around going, I'm not thinking of sex. Are you thinking of sex? Who's thinking of sex? Why are you thinking of sex? I'm going to punish anyone who's thinking of sex. Are you thinking of sex? That's not a group of people who don't think about sex. <laughs> That's a group of people yeah. who can't stop thinking about sex. Let's talk about Queen Victoria, the one yep. who gives the period its name. Again, she has a sort of bad rep. She actually had a, a very happy, in fact, it's odd that we think of her as this kind of cold, lie back and think of England person because she seemed to have a, 
unusually happy uh, marriage and sexual relationship with her her partner, even though it was an arranged marriage and everything, they got like a house on fire. They really did. We think of Victoria often in like her frump era, which is when she was mourning for her husband and she was dressed in black and she was just walking around being cranky and sad. And that's what we tend to think of her. But she was so in love with this guy and not just in love. She fancied the pants off him. Like she writes in her diary after the wedding night that she can't stop staring at his chest and his neck and he's perfectly formed and he's beautiful. Like she wanted to jump on Albert's bones all of the time. She was not a prudish frump. And that phrase, lie back and think of England, that's a bit of an urban myth. It's come to represent what we think of as Victorian women, but the earliest recorded use of that phrase, I think is in like the 1980s. It's one of the many myths that we attribute to the Victorian period, that they weren't enjoying sex. And her daughter went through and, and blacked out lots of her diaries, didn't they? But they, were, <laughs> they were racy. They were. They were racy for the time. Like One of the things that she had done is she had a portrait painted of her, uh, Queen Victoria did, and given to Albert that was only for his private viewing and you can you can see it it's it's not exactly only fans it's, it's she's got she's got a hair loose and she's got bare shoulders and a dress that kind of like drapes and she's sort of staring off but for the time that was racy as hell that was like the 19th century equivalent of send nudes let's come on to other people in society okay. what about was it different for different was there different sexual mores in the in the sort of this new middle class or hard-working bourgeoisie compared to the working class or or the, the aristocracy? Yeah, a lot of what we think about the Victorian period comes from the emergence and the expansion of what we now call the middle class. Arguably, there's always been a middle class, but what happened in the 19th century is this idea really starts to expand and social mobility starts to come in like it had never done before, really. I mean, you could, I guess, be born in the gutter and make your way to the top but that was really difficult what you see in the victorian period is an expansion of industry an expansion of wealth new money starts to emerge and right in the middle of that is what's called the middle class and they seem to be the the guardians of this very victorian morality if you read through the medical advice the legal advice the general conduct codes pamphlets that are really strict about what you can and you can't do one of the things that becomes apparent pretty quickly is that you haven't got time for that if you're working in a factory. You don't like the idea that, you know, you should never expose your ankles to anyone. Actually, they weren't that fussed about ankles, but, you know, that you should never see anybody naked or anything like that. That's not going to work if you're a whole family living in one room in a slum. There were different expectations for where you were on the social rung. And it, was a, and it was a way of expressing your newfound sort of place in society yeah. to, to just be... To yeah, you might not that. have as much money as the aristocrats, but God damn it, you're going to be better behaved than they were. Because if you're an aristocrat, you're kind of off the hook immediately because you've got the money to be able to do whatever the hell you want. Sex work, I think, possibly from stories of the Whitechapel murders, you know, Jack mm. the Ripper from Sherlock Holmes, wherever it might be, we have this sense of the streets of London teeming yeah. with sex workers. Was it... Is there any evidence it was sort of more or less than other periods? We've definitely got evidence that the Victorians were really worried that it was. Gladstone was worried, wasn't he? Well, he, <laughs> he, yeah, he was desperately worried. He was so worried that he would go roaming the streets of London in the evening looking for fallen women to save. Yeah. He was that worried. That's very worried. Thanks, Gladstone. That's, that's really helping stuff. But you've got evidence of Victorian 
moralizers and doctors making estimates of how many people were selling sex in London, for example. And one of the estimates that gets bandied around a lot is 80,000, that there were 80,000 women selling sex on the streets of London in the 19th century. That's just bollocks. Not right. We don't know how many people are selling sex today. We don't have those accurate statistics. It's a very, very difficult group of people to survey properly with it being stigmatized, illegal, and people not wanting to say much about it. How they would have had accurate records in the 19th century, that, it's ridiculous. But the best estimates that we've got today, according to the government report into sex work in the UK of 2016, is they estimate there's about 80,000 people selling sex in the country. So the idea that in the 19th century, there was 80,000 selling sex in the capital on their own. And when you break that down, it would mean like one in five women, regardless of age or marital status or anything else. So it's nonsense. That It couldn't possibly be that. But people believed it. And that's useful as well, because that tells us that if they thought that it's feasible that there's 80,000 people selling sex, they thought this was a really, really big problem. So it's almost like it would have been Medieval London, Georgian London, there would have been sex work going on, but the Victorians started to really notice it, write it down, yeah. make lots of noise about it. And then we've just absorbed that and be like, oh, there must have been an explosion in yeah. this. Yeah. There would have been an increase because of urbanisation as the cities doubled, tripled in size within a very short space of time, within a few decades. The rule of thumb is wherever you've got poverty, you've got someone selling sex. That's how it works. People sell sex because they want to make money. They don't sell sex because they're innately horny or they just this is a useful hobby to do in their spare time. It's about making money. And when the slums hit and expansion hit, poverty was rife. So I imagine that you did get an increase in people turning to sex work because of the circumstances surrounding them. And you have made a career for yourself publishing words for prostitutes from the <laughs> 19th century on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> That's Can I share any? <laughs> um, well, let me see. I think one of my favourite words for someone selling sex is a dolly mop. Uh, that's not 19th century, it's a bit earlier, but a dolly mop is somebody who works, who has a job, but tops up their income okay. by, by selling sex from time to time. So you'd say that you were dolly mopping if you were on a, a low income. I've always liked that, a dolly mop. What about the more extreme forms of sexual activity that, again, for some reason, we, put, we keep labelling the Victorians as being into? flagellation. They did love that though. Did they? They did. Was that a boarding school? Was that a sort of... That's the theory. That's what a lot of people Mm. say is because lots of English boys um, were beaten in boarding schools. They got used to a love of the lash. I don't know if that's actually true, if anyone's looked into that as an actual research project, but that's certainly something that I have heard people suggesting. They might have been interested in that long before that. They probably were. We just don't have the records for it. But flagellation brothels and those kind of services was so popular that flagellation became known as the English vice. Really? Yeah, it was like, there's some really big Victorian players who were really into it. Charles Argon and Swinburne, for example, he um, was a bit of a spank fetish. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, in terms of fetish, there's also, Penguin have published all those amazing like Victorian fantasy, sexual fantasy yeah. books, which are amazing. And yeah. You get the pressure because it's a global empire at this stage. There's a lot of stuff about inter-ethnic sex, like um, sex on the imperial frontier. Yeah. Like, yeah. People are fascinated by it. When you read Victorian porn, and I suggest everyone listening does, and you can access it online because obviously the print industry was booming. People are going to write pornographic stories. Photographs are expensive. I often 
caution my students when when I tell them to go and read it. They sort of approach it with this idea of like, oh, go on then, Victorian person. Go and show me what you've got. <laughs> We've got Pornhub. What have you got? And it really is quite graphic. It's not quite graphic. It's extremely it's graphic. Yeah, yeah. It's like whatever it is that you can think of, they have written it down. But it's... <laughs> can they, I enjoy reading it because, because it's written in Victorian prose. And it sounds like Jane Austen just like writing the most weird smut. And at the time, the standard of writing would have been really trashy, but because it's got that Victorian flourish to the expression, to me, it sounds really funny. It's, I really like reading it. And you get a lot of um, flagellation, you get spanking flagellation. Oh God, you get so much A lot of, so lot of torture, like a lot of masochism. And so much. Sado, yeah. uh, the Whippington Papers, that was quite a popular publication. There is... So much spanking that goes on, pissing on each other all the time. They seem to do that a lot. They really love a good bush. Bush is lush. There's, there's no Brazilians to be had. But there's just like threesomes, foursomes, orgies, same-sex relationships, dildos. It's actually really useful for historians because it answers questions for us like, what did they make dildos out of? Leather. That's what they made dildos out of. So it's good for us that we we can know this stuff. But no, it's no holds barred and whatever you can think of doing, they were doing. I'll be back with Dan after this short break. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Tell about Teresa Barkley. Oh, Mama Teresa. Um, she owned a brothel, a hugely successful brothel on Charlotte Street, as was in London. And we know about her because her name and her establishment is recorded by, I think it's Henry Ashby, who wrote annual reviews of basically all the pornography. That it was like his Liberum 
prohibitorum or something like that. And we, we only know about her because of what he wrote about her, but he writes about her brothel and the services that she offered. And that was whippings and fustications and that she it tells us about the people she had working for. And one of the things that I love about Teresa is we're told that she keeps nettles in long vases of water to keep them pliant. And then she'd whip customers with those. I don't know why you'd want to be whipped with nettle. Well, I think you work your way up to it. Oh, do you think so? I would imagine, like you start with a bit of light slap and tickle, <laughs> maybe throw in some greenery, and then eventually work your way up to a holly bush. Wow. The, you just get pushed to extremism, don't She's you? She's got to keep going more and more and more and more, yeah. but she was the woman to go to. We're making the assumption that these services and this kind of sex industry is for men. Yeah. What about women? Were they just locked in home reading this porn and dreaming of a different <laughs> life? Or did they get a chance to go out and... I hope that they were reading this porn. Um, if you wanted to buy porn in the 19th century, you would go to Hollywell Street in London. Then it became the epicentre of journalism. But it was notorious in the 19th century as being the place that you would go to buy porn, the Whippington Papers and Memoirs of a Flea and all that stuff, and the Pearl. But of course, what it necessitates that we don't have to do now is you have to physically go there. You have to physically go there. And everybody knew what those shops were. There was no, I'm just buying it for the articles. Everybody knew. So I don't know how many women, respectable women, would have done it, that they would have gone and actually, because everyone would have known, you're buying porn, you're buying porn. But I imagine that it wouldn't be that hard to get hold of it if they really, really wanted to. Maybe their husband shared it with them. But I think it's a bit of a fantasy, a bit of a myth that every single Victorian woman was just sat at home waiting for her husband to come back and thinking, what is this sex that you speak of? Maybe for some people, that's true. We've certainly got accounts of that, but they were having sex and they were having plenty of sex and we've got a lot of evidence of that. They're popping out babies. Certainly are. And Left, one right, usually center. requires the other. It does, doesn't it? But there were male, in the pornography that you have shared on yes. the interweb, yes. in your excellent social media accounts, there's a lot of male nudity, a lot of male pornography oh, yeah. as well. Is that for men or is that for women or do we, do we know? The biggest market is has always historically been men, but that certainly doesn't mean that women were not part of that. Just by virtue of the fact that they didn't own their own money, that they couldn't have had access to it, that they would have been stigmatised in a way that perhaps men weren't, even though they were stigmatised. But that doesn't mean that they weren't enjoying sex. It doesn't mean that you wouldn't have got gigolos, for example, uh, kept men. Catherine the Great certainly had a harem of young lovers. She could afford to do that. I love looking at those old daguerreotypes and the old photographs showing the Victorian porn and just wondering who are these people? I know that's not the point. I know you're not supposed to like want to do a deep dive family history of them, but like it's all that we've got left of them is just this snapshot of what are you doing? Like, did you know each other? Are you, were they porn stars of the day? And sometimes you see them in different shoots and you're like, I know you, you're the one from, from there. And then you kind of think, I wonder if that's how they made their living or if it's just something that they did on the side. And you never think, Am I watching too much Victorian porn? I think you are watching too much Victorian porn when you start thinking things like that. We start recognising them when you start yeah. like, oh, it's you. That pert little bottom. <laughs> yeah. Recognise that. So what did Victorians think was hot? Let's start with women. What do they think was a beautiful female body? Well, it changes a lot throughout the century. Okay. We've talked about 100 years. The fashion in the mid-19th century was sort of very plain, the no-makeup makeup look, hair kind of all piled up and just very kind of natural. And by the time you get toward the end of the 19th century, a heavier makeup look 
is coming through. But there are certain things that have been consistent throughout. Healthy skin, glowing face. It was all about being pale, pale, pale. There were no tans. The, the, the whiter, the better. So that was considered beautiful. But yeah, change, changes. What about taste, body shape? Body shape. It's interesting because that, that again changed throughout the 19th century. For women, it tended to be petite. It tended to be very slender. There was at one point in the 19th century where it was like TB chic. It was like, it was the fashion to look as pale and frail as you possibly could. But there were people that booked that trend. And speaking of things that women found attractive, so like someone like Eugene Sando, the bodybuilder, he probably wasn't the first bodybuilder, not by a long shot, but he was definitely one of the first that got celebrity status. And he would go on tour flexing his muscles and he attracted huge crowds of people. Apparently women would pay to go backstage and finger his muscles. I'm glad he said muscles. <laughs> this was also the year of the music hall and yeah. entertainment. So he was part of that. He'd... He's huge, yeah. Um, yeah. But you do see the strong man is like a figure in circus and stuff like that. So that was presumably... And strong women. They often get overlooked really? in Victorian history, but there were very, very successful Victorian strong women. There was a female Eugene Sando who apparently beat him in a wrestling match once. Wow. Yeah. And Eugene Sando, didn't they make, they sort of studied him. They thought he was a sort of proper specimen. He got studied a lot. <laughs> like people like him became a safer repository for the female gaze. You couldn't go down Hollywell Street and and buy yourself some porn. But you could go and look at Eugene Sando and admire his physique. But certainly science took an interest. I think that the Wellcome Trust still have pictures of him flexing his muscles and his physique, and various casts and things were taken of him to try and preserve this absolute specimen. When you look at it now, because this is all pre-steroids and protein pre shakes. Pre pre-protein shakes, you look at him now and you think, yes, he's ripped, but... Yeah. You know, it's it's not like what you'd think, this huge pumped up thing. But for the time, yeah, he was an absolute, absolute specimen of manhood. Why have I heard of Lily Langtree? What, what's the deal with her? Oh, Lily Langtree. She was one of the last great courtesans. She was an actress as well. The 19th century was really the kind of, it was the final curtain for the courtesan as a profession. I say that, Camilla's managed to become queen. Yeah. So maybe, maybe it's still an aspiration. Keep dreaming, side chicks. But the 19th century, certainly, that was sort of the last great era of the courtesan. And Lily Langtree was, was one of the greats. She was one of the many, many, many lovers of Dirty Bertie. Edward the Seventh, as Edward he became. Edward the Seventh, yeah. Absolute shagger. Absolute. Like, couldn't, if it stayed still long enough, he would have a go at it. And there's, there's one immortal line by... Lily Langtree, when she was having dinner with Edward, and he said, damn it, woman, I've spent enough on you to build a battleship. And she retorted, and you've spent enough in me to float one. Oh, crikey. And speaking of that, what about STDs? Because mm. you do the, that's the sort of dark side of, again, the 19th century and yeah. earlier, is that these people had disappear off to go and get treated for syphilis and take mercury yeah. and do all sorts of horrible things. Yeah, it was, I mean, all of the, the sexual freedom and the, you know, the porn and all this stuff, it doesn't capture what was a very real physical threat to people's health. We live in a world now where we, it's not that we're not aware of STDs, but it's just, it's that we know that probably what we'll need is a course of antibiotics or medication, some awkward phone calls, and you'll probably be okay. And you can wear a condom and not get them in the first place. And that's great. 
the 19th century and earlier, that was just a fanciful dream. Is STIs were absolutely rife, as you can imagine. And if it's something like syphilis, which is on the rise again, by the way, so you know everyone needs to watch out for that one. But syphilis is such a mean, horrible illness because it destroys your face. When you first get it, you'll get really intense flu-like symptoms as it takes hold and you will get ugly lesions at the point of infection. So, yeah, um, and it'll be really, really nasty. And then it'll go dormant again and you'll think that you've cured yourself, which is probably why when people were taking mercury, they thought, oh, I'm cured because it went into its tertiary phase, but it hasn't gone away. It's there in the background and it's destroying nervous tissue and it's destroying bone and then it can emerge years later and the, the typical saddle nose of the nose that's collapsed can cause lesions on the head. It causes ulcers to open up. It can cause dementia. It was an awful, awful disease. And there's no hiding it. If your nose has fallen off, there's no hiding that. And there's no other reason for your nose to have fallen off. It's really difficult to explain that one away. So it was really, it was rightly feared. It was terrifying. They would do almost anything to avoid it, apart from not having sex. Well, that's, yeah, so... We never did that, but... <laughs> yeah. So what can you do to avoid it other than not having sex? Right. So there was all kinds of back crap cures and things. Some of them, well, none of them were great. If you were rich and if you had the money and after you'd been infected, mercury was your go-to. I mean, that works. I've, I've never home, actually folks. known. I wanted okay. to ask a physician this question for years and years, and none of them have actually been able to give me an answer to it of like, what did it do? Because it wasn't just the Victorians that used it. They've used it since the 14th century. What did it do that made people think it was helping? The best answer that I've got is that it would help burn off lesions. Hmm. So it would, you could put it on that the lesions to... and it would sort of help with the appearance. But there were mercury fumigation Places that you could go to around London that you'd sit in like a sauna and be steamed with mercury. You could have mercury injected. You could eat mercury. You could rub it on your skin. And my, one of my favorites, and they recovered one of these from the, the, is it the Mary Rose, the, the ship, is you could have it injected directly into the urethra. Oh, yes. They, yeah, that, that fabulous, syringe. the urethral syringe oh, yeah. that they would fill up with mercury and then inject it directly into your, your John Thomas. And none of that would actually get rid of it, but they thought that it did. Other things that you got that was less horrific is you would have like various medicinal compounds. You know, like Lily the Pink, the song, Lily the Pink, the Pink, the Pink. Yeah. She was really an American businesswoman called Lydia Pinkham, and she developed something called Pinkham's Tonic that was, it was just vegetable compounds, really. But it was said to be able to cure absolutely everything, like syphilis and venereal infection was one of the things it said that it could cure. So people would be swigging things like that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Every time you were taking your life in your hands. They still are, Dan. Like, they still, AIDS has been around for like 20, 30 years and people still won't wear condoms. It's like, it's not that, we look at it and go, oh my God, how could you take that risk? People are still doing it. There were Victorian condoms, right? There were Victorian condoms. You're promising slightly. There, was, there were Victorian condom shops as well. There was one in Half Moon Street in near Soho is today. And you would go, and they were called armour. Uh, you'd refer to them as an armour or a machine. Casanova called them English raincoats. You would could buy them in a shop, but you might also buy them in a pub or in a brothel or perhaps from a waiter. They were made of animal guts. Yeah. Um, so normally pig guts, but sometimes fish skins were used as well. The membrane would be scraped 
out. Uh, so it would be like a sausage casing, basically, right? And then that would be left to dry. And then when you wanted to, so it would go crispy, dried out skin. You have to soak it to rehydrate it before use. So it's very sexy already. And then you'd put it onto the penis and you'd probably have to tie it on with a ribbon or a piece of string. And it was reusable. So And it worked? No. Okay. <laughs> No, right. No. Well, I mean, it might have worked a bit. You can still buy animal gut condoms, but they don't protect against STIs. They protect against pregnancy because the That's skin right, isn't porous. They were interested in stopping pregnancy as well. Yeah. Yeah, but they were interested in that. That, that was important yeah. to them. But they weren't, I guess they'd have been better than nothing at all, but not by much. It's, it'd be more like you're safer jumping out of a five story building than a seven story building. It's that kind of safety. Thing. And they might have actually contributed to spreading STIs more because people thought they were safe when they weren't. So actually, we like to laugh about the Victorians and think it's all quite funny. But that, the prevalence of syphilis, mm. the, the danger of those STIs, it made it all, it gives it a, a much, much darker it's Incredibly dark. Yeah. Incredibly dark. There was a lot, it's not a nice history a lot of the time it's it's fun because sex can be fun but it's also really grim and we're speaking of dark sides of course also the issue around sex work and abuse mm. and like the, the age of consent for children was was introduced in this period right it, it was, was 12 at the start of right. the 19th century and by the end it was 16 for girls and 18 for boys but you could still get married at 12 with your parents permission okay yeah well I won't be giving my daughter permission. I, no, I wouldn't. I no, it's I don't know. I just don't know how it. often that happens. Yeah. But the fact it's on the books is. It, mm. If you remember the royal family and it was important yes. to get married. If you were rich yeah. enough. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Anytime. Thank you for listening, Betwixters. And if you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, review and follow along wherever it is that you get your podcasts. We've got episodes on ancient goddesses of sex and war and a special mini-series on the women in JFK's family all coming your way. And if you want us to explore a subject or if you just wanted to say hello, you can email us at betwixt at historyhit.com. And a big hello and thank you to everybody who does take the time to email in those of you that suggest subjects, you are absolutely amazing and a fabulous source of inspiration. And the people that write in to just say hello and that they like listening to the podcast and maybe they were having a bit of a rubbish day and they listened to us chatting away and that improved things. Honestly, thank you so much for sending those messages in. We read every single one and it really does make our day. This podcast was produced by Charlotte Long and Freddie Chick and was mixed by Thomas Delaghi. Join me again betwixt the sheets of the History of Sex Scandal in Society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast contains music from Epidemic Sound. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.